0: Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in with me today. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and we post the video version on YouTube every Thursday as well and you're not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the Case of Margaret Ellen Fox. This is an unsolved disappearance. And if you guys have been watching me for a while, around this time last year, we did a very similar case to this, and I will get into the similarities later. But if you remember the case of Kelly Cook, this case reminded me pretty much exactly of Kelly Cook's case, because this is a very, very similar, if not identical situation and i also know that a lot of you are probably going to be very frustrated when it comes to this case not only because it's unsolved however because it seems as if this could have been easily prevented but with that being said i don't want to waste any more time let's jump right on into it today Margaret Ellen Fox was born on February 4th, 1960 to her parents, David and Mary Fox. Now, growing up, Margaret was the only daughter, and she had four brothers. So as you can imagine, it was a pretty wild household. But regardless, Margaret grew up being, you know, the little girl of the family. She was her family's pride and joy, and she was incredibly close to her family, and especially her siblings. She loved her brothers. Now, Margaret grew up in the town of Burlington, New Jersey, and she attended St. Paul's School in Burlington, and her family was Catholic, and she and her brothers were raised Catholic. Now, Margaret has been described as someone who's very bright, very funny, very charming, charismatic, but she grew up in a household of four brothers. So she learned very quickly how to hold her own and she was very, very confident and very self-sufficient. And the time frame we're looking at this is 1974, and Margaret at this time was 14 years old. So to have a 14 year old girl be as confident and as secure within herself as Margaret was at the time, it's not something you run across every day. Margaret was very extroverted. She never met a stranger and she loved talking with people and always cared about others. And she was very goal oriented. If Margaret set her mind to something, she was going to make sure she got it done no matter what. And that was a really important trait that David and Mary instilled in all of their children was that if you want something, you really need to work for it. Now, the perfect example of this is when the summer of 1974 hit. Margaret had just completed the eighth grade, so she was about to be a freshman in high school. Now, Margaret decided that she wanted to make some money over the summer because she wanted to be able to go shopping and she wanted to be able to have, you know, day trips with her friends and her brothers. And she knew that if she wanted to provide a lifestyle like that for herself, even at just 14 years old, she was going to have to work for it. So she decided that the summer of 1974, she was going to start babysitting. Margaret absolutely adored kids, and she figured that babysitting would be the perfect thing for her to do. Now, in order to get her babysitting business up and running, Margaret asked her parents if she could put an ad in the local newspaper so she could advertise her babysitting. Now, as you can imagine, David and Mary were very hesitant about this because they were just worried about Margaret's safety. You know, putting Margaret out there for really anyone To see, to have her phone number, to have access to her name. It was a very uncomfortable situation for her parents, but Margaret was very, very persistent. And so after some time, she basically told her parents, you know, you guys are too overprotective. I'm gonna be okay. Let me put the ad in the newspaper. And her parents were really proud of her for being as determined as she was to, you know, make some money. And so they didn't want to do anything that would hold her back. So they decided, you know what? Maybe she's right. Maybe we are being a little bit overbearing and they let her put the ad in the newspaper. Now the ad specifically said, babysitters, experienced, teen girls, love kids, work at your house. And it also provided Margaret's home phone number so that anyone could call and book Margaret for babysitting. Now, I looked at some of the other ads that were grouped within Margaret's ad in this local newspaper for babysitting, and something that I found interesting was the other ads that I saw advertised for people to bring their children to the babysitters. So in Margaret's ad, Margaret's advertising that she will go to whoever's house that wants to hire her, whereas other people's ads advertise that they could bring you know their children to them at their house. Now, whether that was for safety reasons or anything like that, I'm not exactly sure. However, I did find that difference very interesting. Now, pretty quickly after Margaret put her ad in the newspaper, she started receiving some traction on her ad and getting phone calls from people inquiring about her babysitting business. And Margaret was thrilled. She was super excited that the ad seemed to be working and that people were wanting to hire her. And she really felt like she was accomplishing the goal that she set out for herself. However, everything changed on Wednesday, June 19th, 1974 now on june 19th, 1974 margaret received a phone call from a man named john marshall now when john had called margaret on the 19th he was actually originally calling for margaret's younger cousin now margaret's younger cousin was 11 years old and she was also trying to get into the babysitting business however she was only 11 so she wasn't really taken as seriously. And when John called Margaret to ask about her younger cousin and learned that her younger cousin was only 11 years old, John told Margaret that that wasn't going to work because the cousin was too young and so he would like to hire Margaret. Now according to this John Marshall guy, he was inquiring for a babysitter for his five-year-old son. John told Margaret that he lived in an area called Mount Holly, which was a seven mile bus ride from where Margaret lived in Burlington. Now, after speaking to Margaret on the phone for a bit, John had offered Margaret $40 a week to watch his son, plus additional money for her to take the bus every day. Her working hours would be from 9.30am to 1.30pm, and John told her that once Margaret would get off the bus, that she could meet him at the intersection at High and Mills Street, and said that either John himself or his wife would pick her up there in their red Volkswagen car. He also said that once her shift was over for the day, he would personally drive her back home every day around 2 p.m. John also told Margaret to bring a bathing suit with her because his family had a pool and that their son loved to swim. Now, when Margaret heard all of this, she thought that she hit the jackpot. Not only was she going to be getting $40 a week, she was also going to be compensated for her transportation. She was going to be able to play in the pool. Like it just sounded perfect for her. Now also, if you remember being around the age of 11, 12, 13, 14, like that early teen years, A lot of times it can be frustrating when you are that age because you feel like everyone's just treating you like a little kid. And now for Margaret, someone has actually come around and is giving her responsibility and treating her like an adult. And it was a very rewarding feeling for her. Now, Margaret told David and Mary her exciting news. And as you can imagine, they were very uneasy. Margaret was going to be going to a stranger's house, someone they don't know, someone they've never spoken to. She was going to have to take the bus in order to get there, and it just all seemed like a recipe for disaster for them. However, again, Margaret just told them that they were being overprotective and that they needed to loosen the reins a little bit. And again, her parents sat back and thought, Maybe we are holding her back. They wanted to let Margaret do this because this was something good that she wanted to do. She wanted to make money, she wanted to work, she wanted to have responsibility and it was something she was really excited about. So they didn't wanna try and diminish that or discourage her from that. Now, like I said, the original phone call from John Marshall came in on the 19th of June. And on that phone call, John had told Margaret that she could start her first day on the 21st. So that was just going to be two days later that Friday. Now, the following day on the 20th, John actually called back to Margaret's house, and this time telling her that he didn't need her to start until the 24th, because apparently there was a death in his family, and so they wouldn't need her to come in for a couple more days. Now, although Margaret was a little bit bummed that she couldn't start the very next day, she understood, of course, and David was actually standing right there while this phone call was taking place and David was actually able to talk to John on the phone. Now, luckily, Mary was in the house at the time as well, so both of Margaret's parents were able to speak to John Marshall, and just the fact that they were able to talk to him on the phone made them feel a little bit more at ease about what Margaret was about to get herself into. And again, I think it's very important to note that this was 1974. We have to remember the time period here. You know, I know that I'm reading through this and I just can hear you guys right now being like, why on earth? With these parents let their child go and i get it however you just you have to remember that this was such a different time you know in today's society if something like this were to happen you know we're all so much more advanced in what we know about stranger danger and just all of the things that could go wrong however back then it was different you know you didn't have those same fears and while there was a little bit of an uneasy feeling You just didn't have the knowledge that we have today about everything that could possibly go wrong. Now, after talking to John on the phone, Mary and David stated that there wasn't any red flags coming from John. The situation definitely made them feel uneasy. However, after discussing it among themselves and seeing how excited Margaret was, they ultimately decided that they were going to let her go. So that now brings us to Monday, June 24th. Now on this particular day, Margaret woke up bright and early for her first day of work. Mary and David gave Margaret very specific instructions that once she arrived to John Marshall's house, they wanted her to call her parents and just let her know that she got there safely and that everything was okay so on the morning of the 24th margaret gathered her belongings and got her things together and margaret and her younger brother joe who was 11 years old at the time walked to the bus stop together and john sent her on her way when she got on the bus margaret was wearing maroon colored jeans with a yellow patch right above her knee she was also wearing a blue floral top brown sandals and a black and white checkered jacket This would be the last thing that Margaret was ever seen wearing. At the time of her disappearance, Margaret had brown hair, blue eyes, stood at about 5'2", and weighed about 105 pounds. Her two top front right teeth were missing, and she also wore eyeglasses. She was wearing a gold necklace with flowers on it, as well as a gold charm bracelet with a blue stone on it. Now Joe, Margaret's younger brother, remembers the last time seeing Margaret was saying goodbye to her at the bus stop and he watched his sister get on the bus that was headed for Mount Holly, not knowing that this would be the last time that he or her family would ever see her again. Now, Margaret's parents waited by the phone all morning for the phone call that Margaret was supposed to give them, saying that she had made it to John successfully and safely. However, that phone call never came. Now, after some time had passed and Margaret should have called her parents, they obviously began to worry. So what they ended up doing is they ended up actually calling the phone number that John Marshall had given them to say, you know, if you ever need me or need to get a hold of Margaret, here's my phone number. It was kind of like a safety precaution just to make them feel more comfortable. However, their hearts sank when they called that phone number back and they realized that it was not John Marshall's home phone number. However, in fact, It was a pay phone number outside of an A&P supermarket on Route 38 in Mount Holly. And the reason that they learned this was because some random stranger had actually ended up picking up the phone. And they were able to tell David and Mary where this phone was and where they were actually calling to. And so that's how they figured it out. And their stomachs, as you can imagine, they were gutted. The reality had then hit them that their daughter could be anywhere at this point, and the only access that they thought they had to her was now proven to just be fake. Now again, and I feel like this is going to be very controversial, Mary and David decided to wait until 2.30 p.m. that day, which was the time that Mary was supposed to be coming home. They wanted to see if maybe there was a mix-up, maybe there was a misunderstanding, maybe they heard the number wrong. They didn't know, so they wanted to wait until 2.30 when Mary was supposed to come home in order to actually take action. And when 2.30 came and went, and Margaret still did not make get home, David decided to reach out to one of his friends who actually worked in law enforcement at the time. His friend worked for the East Hampton Police Station and so David called his friend and the two of them met up and drove to Mount Holly themselves, trying to search for Margaret. They started asking some locals in the area if they had seen Margaret, and there were actually a few people who claimed to have seen her that morning getting off the bus and waiting at the corner of High and Mill Street, which is exactly where John Marshall told Margaret to wait for him at. Now, what this told David is that Margaret made it on the bus, she made it to Mount Holly, she made it off of the bus. However, what happened after that was still unknown. Now, after traveling to Mount Holly and realizing that this was way bigger than something that David can just solve himself, they decided to get the police involved and actually file an official missing persons report. Now, Margaret's family knew from the get-go. This was not a case of Margaret who just decided to run away at all. That was not what was happening here. She didn't bring any of her belongings with her and she was trying to babysit in order to earn money so she had really no means of going anywhere because she didn't have the money to take her there now police decided that the first thing that they wanted to do is they wanted to wiretap the fox's family phone that way they could record all calls that came in just in case margaret ended up calling them Police did this because they believed that they were looking at an abduction at this point and they were treating this case as such. They had printed out missing persons flyers and posted them all throughout town and they made this case very publicly known. Now the whole wiretapping of the phone again was to see if Margaret was going to call them or to see if Margaret's abductor, because again they believed that this was an abduction at this point was going to call. And their suspicions were proven right. When four days after Margaret went missing, the Fox family received a phone call from a man who said, quote, $10,000 might be a lot of bread, but your daughter's life is the buttered topping, end quote. $10,000 might be a lot of bread, but your daughter's life is the buttered topping. Who is it? Now, this call was actually never released to the public until 2019, and we will get there in a second and kind of dissect that. But not releasing it until 2019 was a big point of contention in this case because a lot of people believed that this was a huge miss on the police's part because had they released the phone call, it's very possible that someone would have recognized the voice on the other line. Now, there was a man named Leonard Burr, who was actually the lead detective that was originally assigned to Margaret's case. Now, he decided that the best plan of action was actually to retrace Margaret's steps meaning that he was actually going to get on the same bus that Margaret took that day to Mount Holly and just basically retrace her entire day. So Detective Burr ended up getting on this bus and he started asking around the people on the bus with him if they remembered seeing Margaret. Now, there were actually two women who were on the bus with Detective Burr who also claimed that they were on the bus with Margaret. The first woman claimed that her son, who was a young toddler, was actually trying to play with Margaret's hair. And instead of getting upset, Margaret was happy to play with her son. The woman said that Margaret talked like she had an old soul, she seemed very friendly, and that she had smiley eyes. Now, the second witness that claimed to have seen Margaret was a woman who said that she watched Margaret get off of the bus that day and then approach a man in a red sports car. Now, police were actually able to track down this exact specific sports car and this man who owned it. However, they quickly learned that this was not the man that took Margaret, and they believe instead it was Margaret, assuming that the man in the red car was John Marshall, because he had the same description of the car that John said he had, which was a red Volkswagen. However, they do believe that the man turned Margaret away because he was not John Marshall. Now, the next course of action in this investigation was for the detectives to track down every single John Marshall in the area. They knew that more than likely, this John Marshall did live in Mount Holly, and they were specifically focusing on the Mount Holly area. And there were actually quite a few John Marshalls who lived in the area. However, one of them stood out in particular. There was a man named John Marshall who actually worked at the A&P grocery store in the same shopping center that the pay phone number was given. Now, as you can imagine, this was a huge red flag and police actually thought that they were getting somewhere here. They interviewed this John Marshall several times and he was also given a polygraph test, which he ended up passing. Now this man also had an alibi. He said that he was working during the time that Margaret would have gone missing and police were able to confirm that. So because of that, he was pretty much ruled out as a potential person of interest and suspect. Now, a lot of people agreed that this John Marshall name was more than likely an alias because why on earth, if you were you know being practical about it and logical, would you give someone your real name? And so this is where the investigation pretty much went cold and authorities did not know where to go from here. They had no clue where Margaret was and no leads to go off of. They did have a $25,000 reward for Margaret's return, but still nothing. There was a man in May of 1976 who claimed that he was responsible for the abduction and murder of Margaret. His name was Charles Colbridge. However, his confession was quickly debunked when authorities learned that Charles was actually in the hospital the day that Margaret was abducted. Which again, it's just bizarre that so many people will try and take credit for abductions and murders. It's it's a very bizarre narcissistic trait. However, Charles Colbridge was not responsible for it. Now let's talk about this phone call. Remember how I mentioned earlier that there was a phone call that was wiretapped and recorded, however, authorities were never able to figure out where the call came from or who the caller was. Now it wasn't until 2019 that this phone call was released to the public. $10,000 might be a lot of bread, but your daughter's life is a buttered topic. Who is it? Now, again, there have been a lot of questions on whether or not this was a robotic playback or if this was an actual person speaking. Now, you have to remember this was 1974 and the police have defended their decision on not releasing the phone call until three years ago by saying that audio recognition technology was nowhere near compared to how it is now back then. So that is why they wanted to wait so that they can enhance the audio to the best of their ability. So now the phone call is in the public and anyone can listen to it. And I do wanna say that because police were not able to get in contact with this man, they were never able to try and figure out an exchange of money and how to get Margaret back safely because this man never identified himself in any other way. And that is assuming that the person that called is the person that's responsible for Margaret's disappearance. Because again, there is that chance that the person that called is not responsible for it. So let's talk about theories here. Now the first one that I feel like I just need to mention, but it has really no merit to back it up, and I personally don't believe it's true, along with pretty much everyone else does not believe it's true, that is the theory that Margaret ran away. Again, there's really no evidence to back this up, and it just seems like an empty theory and almost a little bit disrespectful to the entire case when you look at it as a whole. Now, the second theory is that Margaret was taken by a stranger while waiting for John Marshall. Again, you always have to look at the possibility if we're looking at no stone being left unturned, that maybe Margaret was waiting for John Marshall, and while waiting, some other person saw an opportunity and took it. However, again, that does not seem as plausible because you would think with the level of exposure that Margaret's case got, if John Marshall was actually who he said he was and had no ill intentions, he would come forward and try and clear his name. Now the third theory is that Margaret was abducted by John Marshall. Now, Again, I don't believe that John Marshall is his actual name, I believe that it is an alias. However, it does make me wonder, because when you look at the fact that there is a John Marshall who works at the A&P grocery store, which is exactly the phone number that this quote unquote John Marshall gave David and Mary in order for them to get in touch with Margaret when they wanted to, that almost seems like too close of a coincidence and personally i feel like that gives one of two possibilities the first one being that the john marshall who works at amp he indirectly or directly knows who did this however just doesn't realize it or b the suspect john marshall saw the real john marshall i know it gets kind of confusing but the suspected person to take Margaret saw the real John Marshall, who worked at the AMP and basically just decided to steal his name. Again, there always is that possibility that maybe he didn't know that there was a specific John Marshall that worked there, and maybe he just chose the alias John Marshall. However, again, that coincidence just almost seems too close to be a coincidence. So that is where we stand on this case and the investigation. Now, I do believe that this is probably not the first time, nor was it probably the last time that this quote-unquote John Marshall had done something like this because he was able to get away with it so smoothly. However, what's so frustrating about this case is that someone knows who this John Marshall is, but never suspected it because... His actual name isn't John Marshall. Now, I told you guys in the beginning that this case definitely reminds me of the Kelly Cook case. We did that case about a year ago, and if you haven't listened to it, I definitely recommend it. It is a crazy case about Kelly Cook, who was hired by a man over the phone to come and babysit for him. She was picked up by the man at her house taken away, and was never seen again. Now, that case was in Canada, so two very different geographical locations, and I don't think there's any connection. However, it was just crazy to see how many similarities there were. Now, I am very interested to see what you guys have to say about this case. Again, my personal theory is I land on the side where I believe that John Marshall is an alias. I believe that he is a resident of Mount Holly, however, goes by a different name. And I believe that this is not the first nor the last time he has done something like this. However, I am very, very interested to see what you guys have to say about this case. But with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday, and then again, every Thursday on YouTube, and you're not gonna wanna miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys.